So we're going to jump right into this passage and invite you to follow along on your Bible app, on your phones, or your pew Bible. It's page 46 in the New Testament. They start again the numbering at the back, so it's toward the back end of the book, page 46 of the New Testament. We've been doing a series, This is Jesus, where we're looking at Jesus according to the first century eyewitness, Mark. And what we've seen so far, so far in this picture of Jesus is this wandering teacher. This is one of the things that Jesus does. He's wandering through the countryside and he is giving instruction to the crowds that gather around him because he's healing and they want to hear what he has to say. And he meets with a lot of opposition on the way because he's rocking the boat of the religious establishment, the political establishment of the time. And one of his main groups of opponents are called the Pharisees. They're a devout, they're the most pious of the Jewish sects that are in the, uh, that are in the area at the time. And so they go, the Pharisees go to his public teaching session, sort of like when, elected, when candidates for election you know, wander around talking, there are people that follow them just to heckle them. That's, the Pharisees are with questions. And they come, and it says here that they come to test Jesus with this question. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Now, Jesus, as he often does, doesn't take the bait of responding to the question with an answer. He turns the question back on them, and he says, what did Moses command you? Now, the Pharisees are asking a legal question of Jesus because at the center of the Jewish spiritual life was the faithful observance of the law, which was given by God through Moses, that leader who had led the uh, Israelite people, the Jewish people, out of slavery in Egypt over a thousand years beforehand. Moses was believed to be the author of the first five books of the Jewish Bible, and as far as the Jewish law went, there was no earthly authority higher than Moses. He's the author of the Constitution, so to speak. And so they say, well, Moses let a man divorce his wife. Now, this was technically true. There's one law about divorce in the Jewish Bible. It's in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 24. And interestingly, though, that law is actually not about how to get divorced. Deuteronomy 24, which is what the Pharisees are referring to, says that if a man divorces his wife because, quote, she has found no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, if she then remarries and then gets divorced again or becomes a widow, her first husband can't remarry her a second time. The reason for this law was to protect wives. Because when a woman married, her family gave a dowry, money to her husband, and if the husband divorced his wife, he kept the dowry. And if she remarried, then her family paid a second dowry. But if she then divorced or was widowed, she kept that second dowry. And so the point of Deuteronomy 24, the point of this law, is to keep a husband from divorcing his wife, which was socially traumatic for her, and then remarrying her to get more money out of it. But by Jesus' day, the rabbis, the teachers of the law, had taken this law and used it as the basis for saying when divorce was okay. So it says, the law says, if a husband has divorced his wife because she's found no favor in his eyes, because he's found some indecency in her, and they say, oh, okay, so that must be when it's okay for a husband to divorce his wife, if she's found no favor in his eyes because he's found some indecency in her. That's when it's okay. Like, that's not the point of the law but that's what they've extrapolated from it. Now, there were three rabbinic interpretations that prevailed at the time of Jesus. One was the school of the rabbi Shammai, which said, 
if he's found indecency in her, which said you can get divorced for adultery, infidelity. And then the school of the rabbi Hillel said if he's found anything indecent in her, and he said you can divorce your wife if she burns your dinner. And then there was Rabbi Akiba who said if, she's found, if he has, she has lost favor in his eyes, and he said you can divorce your wife if you found somebody prettier. And the Pharisees want to see where Jesus falls in this spectrum of teaching. That was kind of the, the, you know, the, the options of the day. Which, it's worth noting, we're all just different degrees of how subject a woman ought to be to the whims of her husband's desire. And here's the thing. The Pharisees wanted to know because they were believers in God's law. They took it so seriously that they wanted to know exactly what it said, exactly how they were supposed to live every part of their lives. But the problem with the Pharisees that Jesus shows here is that you can observe the letter of the law and still not have your heart in the right place. Because knowing the law can be an exercise in self-justification, like, what can I get away with in this situation? I mentioned in a sermon a while back that we're doing some work on our house, the infamous floorboards. I've heard a lot about those floorboards. <laughs> we had to get a building permit for this, and the city inspectors have come by to make sure that things are up to code, that we're following all the regulations. But that's all they care about, like how thick the drywall is. They're making sure that the work is being done safely and correctly. And as long as we're sticking to code, we could do whatever we want with this house. As long as we play by the rules, the rest is, free ga is fair game. So the inspectors from the city aren't coming in to examine whether this space is going to be beautiful and pleasing to the eye. They're not coming in to inspect whether it's well-designed. They're not coming in to inspect whether it's going to be a warm and nurturing home for children, because the building code can't regulate any of that. And what Pharisees are, what Jesus is saying here is, you Pharisees, you're like somebody who's building to code, sure, but you've lost sight of the purpose. You're building a house, but it's not a home. Because you're just looking for what you can get away with, with divorce. Like, what's permitted? What can I do without getting in trouble with the big man upstairs? Unless we smile and nod and say, oh yeah, those Pharisees are awful. I mean, don't Christians do this too? Isn't there the temptation to treat the Bible and Jesus like it's a set of rules, like a checklist for getting into heaven? Like, if I do this and I don't do that, then I won't get in trouble. Isn't there a conservative sexual ethic that says the only criterion for sex is whether you're married? And if you're not married, it's all bad, and if you are married, anything goes. And isn't there a liberal sexual ethic in the church also that says the only thing that matters is whether there's consent? Like, if everybody's okay with it, anything goes. But just because you're married doesn't make it loving. Just because everybody consents doesn't make it loving, right? These are just ways to justify ourselves so we know we're not getting in trouble. The desire to be justified, to say, I'm in the right, I can't get in trouble. This is pervasive, this is pernicious. And those Pharisees are more familiar than we might like. Anyway, so Jesus says, yeah, that's not it right there. He says, look, Moses gave you the right of divorce because of your hard-heartedness. Like, because you all have hard hearts, marriages fail. And sometimes, and Moses gave you the possibility of divorce because sometimes it's going to be the lesser evil. Like, God gave you the law through Moses because he knew you were going to screw up somehow. But this kind of messing around, oh, I can leave my wife because she burned my dinner, Moses says so. You're missing what's really happening in marriage. 
Jesus says, maybe you've built a house to code, but it's a terrible home. Because, Jesus says, God made humankind as man and woman, and that's why a man, this is quoting Genesis, the first book of the Bible, that's why a man leaves his parental home and is united with his wife, and the two become one flesh. So they, they are no longer two, but one flesh. And what God has joined together, let no one separate. Now, when Jesus says God has brought you together, he doesn't mean like God made you guys find each other on the app. He's saying that when two people come together as a married couple, God unites them in a spiritual, metaphysical way. Jesus is saying something happens in marriage that's written into creation itself. And you Pharisees, you've lost sight of that. You're so focused on how you can get divorced without breaking God's law that you've lost sight altogether that divorce breaks flesh. This one flesh made by God. And if, as if that weren't intense enough, then he's talking to his disciples and he says, what this means is that the oneness of married flesh, a unity made by God, actually can't be broken by human divorce law, which means that remarriage after divorce is adultery. The Gospel of Matthew tells the same story, just a little differently. Matthew records that Jesus says divorce and remarriage is allowed when someone has been unfaithful. But also in that version, the disciples hear what he's saying, and they freak out. They're like, are you serious? If that's true, if that's what's happening in marriage, it'd be better not to get married at all. Like, whoa, man, those stakes are way too high. Way too high. And one thing we don't talk enough about as a church is the inherent value, the inherent worthiness of a singleness as a state of being, as a way of living life. That was a state held in high esteem by the early church, but that's another sermon. Anyway, I can understand the disciples' reaction because, to be honest, the vision of marriage that Jesus is putting forward is way more intense than any of us, any of us, tend to think about it. And it's so intense that I wonder if we can even bring ourselves to hear what the Lord is saying, to take Him at face value rather than pretend he's saying something that lands a little easier on us. Or just turn the page and get to the good part where he rises from the dead. I talked with a lot of divorced people while I was preparing this sermon. I know a lot of divorced people. Some remarried, some not. Because I wanted to know how this passage landed on them. And one person said this passage felt kind of like despair. Because with most things, we might do wrong, like you, you do this or that wrong, but you can repent, you can ask for forgiveness, but it sounded to this person like what Jesus is saying here is if you've divorced, you've broken that unity of married flesh, and if you've remarried, you've committed adultery, and, and this person says there doesn't seem to be any way out of that. There's no escape. So what do you do? Where do you go? And that's what makes this such a brutally hard passage because there's not one of us that it leaves untouched. Like, if, I'm not going to do this, but if I ask everyone to stand up who's been divorced or who had experienced divorce in your family or your friendships, there wouldn't be a single person left seated in this room. So if we take Jesus seriously here, that's a heavy judgment that falls on all of us. And feeling the weight of his words directed at ourselves or at someone we love, that's, that's hard. And let's be real. Maybe he feels terribly unfair. 
because some of us will have had truly terrible experiences with divorce, and others in this room, if we're being honest, will have had experiences of divorce where it's hard not to see the positive side of it, right? Because in our culture, marriage is a love match, a joining of legal equals. It's not primarily about children and family continuity like it was in Jesus' day. And if what you expect from marriage, as virtually all of us do, is personal flourishing and love, then it's undeniable that a marriage without those things, which ends in divorce and opens the door to a new marriage with those things, that's going to seem like not entirely a bad thing or even a good thing. And in the case of an abusive relationship, my goodness, divorce can be a great thing. It can be a life-saving thing. And then here's Jesus saying what he says. No loopholes in sight. When I was preparing the sermon and talking with people who had been divorced, one thing that stood out to me was that almost all of them talked about divorce like it was a kind of death. Unprompted. They just, many people came back with this, this kind of language. It was like they knew the truth of Jesus' words in their bones, that divorce was the death of a flesh that God had made out of two. And divorce, even when they felt like it was the right and necessary thing, they felt like it was a ripping, a breaking of that flesh. I'm not saying everybody feels that way. Maybe that's not your experience at all. But the people I talk to, that's how they felt. And if you are divorced, or if you love someone who's divorced, but especially if you're divorced, I want you to hear me really clearly. I am not standing here to pile on shame. I am not standing here to condemn you, to add to what I suspect was probably one of the most painful episodes in your life. Because listen, Jesus also said that whoever looks at someone with lust has already committed adultery with them in their heart, and that means there's not a single marriage in this room, not a single marriage in this city that has not been violated by adultery, whether of body or of heart. None of us is without sin. None of us has a clean conscience. And though I've never been divorced, I can also say with absolute certainty that any married, any married person who has been married long enough who claims not to understand how divorce happens, who thinks their marriage could never break down, that they could never cheat, it could never happen to them, is lying to themselves. Marriage, this life of one flesh, it's so good, but it's also so, so hard. So what do we do? What do we do here? Stuck between the rock of Jesus' words and the hard place of our lived experience in a culture and a church that's made its peace with divorce. Aren't we all trapped by this? Yeah. We're not okay. But here's what I want us to remember. Listen to this. It's so important. Remember how the Pharisees were so determined to figure out how they could avoid being in trouble? Build to code, be okay? What Jesus is telling us here, what he's telling us everywhere, is that okay isn't an option for us. Okay isn't an option. Jesus isn't giving us a set of regulations where if you tick the right boxes, no sex before marriage, be a nice person, don't lie or swear or chew or go with girls who do. He's not giving us a set of regulations where if you do all these things, you can be okay. Okay isn't an option for us, not just for the divorced, they just know it better than the rest of us. The world's broken. Broken, and we can't fix it. And we're broken. Broken. 
and we can't fix us. And that is so hard to accept because we all desperately want things to basically be all right and we want someone to tell us the rules for life so that if we just follow those rules and build our house to code, then everything will be okay, but it's not going to be okay. Listen, everyone in this room is in a different spot spiritually. And if you're seeking or if you're thinking about Jesus, this is a bit of the pull the curtain back moment. Because we're preaching a sermon series called This is Jesus, but the Jesus we're meeting in the Gospels kind of messes with the picture that a lot of people have. He's not this super sweet guy. He's not this teacher of timeless moral truths, this dispenser of valuable life lessons. No, he blasts into the world like lightning hitting a piece of Kleenex. This apocalyptic prophet bearing the good news that everything you know is wrong. The flesh broken by divorce, that's the tip of the iceberg as far as what Jesus is talking about. The way we view money, status, fame, sex, power, it's all broken. And the world is broken because the human heart is broken. Broken because it doesn't know God. And Jesus says, here, look, here. That's good news. Why is that good news? Because God hasn't forgotten. God hasn't forgotten. God is good. God is faithful. God will make a broken world new, Jesus says. But the old world, your old self, your old heart, it has to die first. Not get tweaked a little bit. Die. And God will raise it to a new life. And you can know this is true, Jesus says, because it's going to happen to me. I'm going to die the death of the oppressed, and God is going to raise me to life, and God will set you free. This is Jesus. This is what he's offering. And here's how it relates to our passage today. Because the thing is that when you cut through all the garbage, all the pretend, and you've come this morning because there's something in you that doesn't want to put up with the pretending, all the lies that we tell ourselves just to get through the day, we want to remember the truth, the truth of what each of us wants and needs at our very core, which is to love and be loved. To love and be loved, that's it. Underneath it all, that's it. But we're so, so bad at it. We're just really bad at it. Loving and being loved is so hard. To give love, to receive love. That's why Moses gave us divorce, Jesus says, because sometimes we just can't handle this love business. That's why God gave us a law that lets you break the one flesh he made out of two. Not because the breaking is good. I'm not going to pretend that Jesus says something he doesn't say. But because sometimes, very, very rarely, it's less bad. Less bad. And listen, into all this mess walks Jesus. God taking on flesh in a world of broken flesh, in a world of flesh breakers. And he lets his flesh be broken by these broken lovers. And you know what Scripture says happens then? It says that the way Christ loved his church, his people, it was like a marriage. In Adam and Eve, God made two into one, but they broke that, and we still break that. But in Jesus Christ, God made two into one, humanity and God, into one in the person of Jesus. And he takes our humanity and makes it one with himself. And in a few minutes, we're going to live this out because he gave us his broken flesh as bread to receive, and our broken flesh consumes it. He takes our broken flesh, 
and his broken flesh and makes a new flesh out of them. I believe in the resurrection of the body, we say. Listen, we're talking about mysteries here. This is not life application stuff. This is not ethics. This is not the right way to vote, how to recycle. There's nothing to do with this except worship because that is what it means to receive the kingdom of God like a little child as our passage wraps up. Like a child receiving a blessing who's not looking to get the answers right, to tick the boxes, to comply with code. Like a child who just receives what's given because they can't take for themselves. That's us. Us. He took the children in his arms and he placed his hands on them and he blessed them. And he will take your broken, dying flesh to his broken, resurrected flesh so that they are no longer two but one. You and Christ, one flesh, and what God has joined together, no one will ever separate.